Okay. All right, for the sake of recording, <laughs> I want your help for this church that's, that's young, they're starting to quarrel about stuff, and uh, they're in a bad way. They're, they formed in little splinter groups in the church, and they're in crisis, but the problem is they have no idea that they're in crisis. They think this is just normal. So... How would you help this church get back on track? What biblical truth would you turn to to help this divided church become united? And if you were to choose an image, a physical image, material image, to draw on to help them to think about being together on things, what would you choose? Well, let's see how the Apostle Paul dealt with this young first century church in the Greek city of Corinth. And we're looking at the book of First Corinthians. We should have the map up there. So in the book of First Corinthians, this is written to this church in Corinth. Paul had invested a solid 18 months of intense ministry in their city. And that resulted in many of them coming to faith in Christ. And he'd, he'd been the church planter. So he was the spiritual father. And they were on his heart. And you can sense this in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. They were on his heart. And he's writing to them to help them get back on track about their fractured church as well as to answer some questions that they had that they needed some direction on. And Paul saw that the core issue in this church was wrong thinking about what the church is, about the nature of the church, and how its people are to relate to each other. And we get a sense of this wrong thinking and this wrong behavior in the opening words in verse 10 through 15. I appeal to you, brothers, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, and yet you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there were quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas or Peter. And still another says, I follow Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And so here was this community of believers. They were genuine followers of Christ. That's, that's not even up for debate. That's settled in the opening way in which he talks to them. But they're divided by the wrong understanding of what it meant to be a church of God. 
They were a group of people, an ecclesia, a group of called out people that God individually called out one at a time to faith in Christ, to be their Savior and to follow him as their Lord. But these spiritually rescued people that had been taken out of so much stuff in their background, there were people that Christ loved, and yet they had become polarized around certain ministry personalities like Paul and Apollos and Peter. In our day, we might call them Paulites or Apollites or Peterites. And Paul uses this exaggerated language to jar them into reality. He asks them this incredulous question, is Christ divided? You know, is he, is he divided in little groups of people so some get a little bit of Christ in that group and some get a bit of Christ in the other group? And, and he obviously, this is to jar them into reality. And to quote someone who makes a comment on this, he says, the Corinthians were acting as if they had been isolated and independent units. Their motto was, each man for himself. So there was jealousy and dissension, discontent, mutual thwarting, where there should have been a mutual sympathy and helpfulness. And so Paul is going to set before them the ideal of the church. So when those symptoms show up, dissension, jealousy, discontent, those are symptoms, those are red flags that there's something wrong in the church. Now, Paul is going to drive home the core truth that the church, their church, is one body with many members. And I like this image that kind of gives us that that sense of, of what, what that is like, and you'll see this in a moment. So the church is not a group of individuals that are free to break out into their own elite spiritual groups or ignore and look down on, on those who are not part of their circle or group. And by the way, this is what church membership is modeled after. We join individually with a local body of believers, and it's a way to intentionally identify with the body here and to commit ourselves to worship and serve together as one. That's the expression of it. So our text for what we want to deal with this morning is 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13 and 27. So I hope that you have a Bible to draw from. There's some in the pew if you don't have one available, but we want to look to see what God's word says. 1 Corinthians 12 12 and 13 and 27. So Paul, in the middle of what he's saying, and we'll, we'll get back to the context in a minute, he says the human body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, And we were all given the one spirit to drink. So in verse 27, now you, believers in Corinth, you believers here in the rock, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You're not going to discover some new deep truth today. We just need to be reminded of God's truth. We need to remind of this basic truth that believers in a local church 
are a unit. And in this day of individualism and meism, it's important for us to be reminded of that because North American Christianity is all about me and my beliefs and my convictions and my preferences. And that gets us into problems. It's not about me. It's about Christ and the rest of the body. It's about we, not me. And if we don't get a right understanding in our relationships and in how we go about doing church, we get into problems and we all suffer as a result. So Paul is going to use one of the questions that the church asked him about to get to the truth that the church is one body with many members. So in chapter 12, Paul turns to the question they had asked. They wanted to know about spiritual gifts, and that's why he says, now about spiritual gifts, brothers. Now, the word gifts has been supplied by translators. In the original, it doesn't say gifts. It says, now about spirituals, about pneumaticos. So you've asked a question about this. So I want you to understand is what he says. But it fits the context to say spiritual gifts. So Paul is gently telling the church that they needed some understanding, that they were not up to speed. They were ignorant about the place of spiritual gifts and their purpose. So now he's going to drive home the truth about their oneness and unity in Christ. So at verse 4 he says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works in all of them. Paul's preferred image, his image tool for this section is the human body. And this uh, image that you will see on the screen helps us to get a sense that we are all an integral part of the body of Christ. So he uses it to teach and illustrate how the church is one body with many members. It's a dynamic argument for bringing a spirit of togetherness among believers in every church community. So Paul uses the human body image to describe the church in other letters to churches. You'll find it in his letter to Rome in chapter 12, in his letter to Ephesus in chapter 4, and his letters to the church in Colossae in chapter 2. So the human body is an ideal image, and it would be especially meaningful for all the readers of these four churches because they were all in a Greek culture, the Roman culture, Roman Greek culture. The language of the day, of course, was Greek. It was the trade language. And all of these cultures were surrounded by Greek culture. It permeated the commercials of the day. And in their Greek culture, the human body was worshipped and celebrated in art sculpture. They were they're obsessed with it, we're told. The ancient Greeks were obsessed with the human body and how they could represent it as a thing of beauty and a bearer of meaning. And that's why their sculpture is so much uh, effort put into that. And I quote here, For the Greeks, everything revolved around idealism. Greek art began with Egyptian-inspired views and techniques about the human body. This kept going till they figured out how to make everything perfect about the human body in their own way. So the main influence into trying to create that idealism in the statues of humans and architecture begins with their religious beliefs. And that was 
Their Greek gods were the most powerful gods on earth, and they were mostly human-like creatures, and they had to have a perfect body. So I say that because Paul intentionally draws in the image of the human body in this Greek culture to teach them about the beauty of church oneness and unity. And he got their attention with this image. Since they had high respect for the human body, they would understand the cohesive and amazing way that the body functions with so many different diverse parts. And yet the body is a thing of beauty. I don't mean to worship it, but the way it functions is an amazing, amazing thing. So Paul begins by, by identifying the believers together with Jesus Christ in our text. All the many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. So let me share some related truths about the body of Christ, whether it's in the universal body of Christ that includes every believer everywhere in the world at this moment in time, throughout the town of Woodstock, throughout our province, throughout our country, throughout the whole world, that's the one true universal mystical body of Christ. But then it's it's expressed in local congregations like we are this morning. So first of all, the first thing to know, to be reminded of, and I think this is the foundation, we are all united with Christ. It starts with him. And in verse 27, he says, now you Christians, you are the body of Christ. You Christians here in the rock, you are the body of Christ. It is a body of Christ, an expression of believers. Christ and his body are one entity, one flesh. Jesus is the head of the church. And remember, Paul draws in this analogy, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. So the church we are part of, universal and local, is first of all about Jesus Christ, the head. That's the primary focus. When we turn to Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are spiritually united with him. And we're linked with him in a union that, un- that is uninterrupted in this life and it lasts throughout eternity and nothing can sever that relationship with Christ. Paul celebrates that in Romans 8 at the end of the chapter. And the marriage union is modeled after this union of Christ and the church. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. So there's a very close relationship there. Marriages are just a physical expression of that great relationship, one flesh of Christ and his, and his church. So how do you get into the body of Christ? How do you become part of Christ? Well, it's all about God's work for us and in us. It's not about our work. We cannot contribute anything to make ourselves a Christian to get into the body of Christ. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not whoever goes to church or lives a good life. It's only Jesus. Have you called upon him at some point in your life? Have you called him on as your Savior, not to help you through difficult times, 
but to call upon him because you need him as your savior. If you haven't, he is waiting to listen for you to say, I need you as a savior. I'm sinner. Rescue me. Give me eternal life. Since it's God who puts believers into the one body of Christ, Paul asked the church in Corinth, is Christ divided? It's a question with an expected answer of obviously not. Church unity begins by remembering that the church is first of all about Jesus Christ, the head of this one spiritual body. The church in Corinth needed to grasp and live out this reality. You know, it reminds us that we need to be very careful that we always think and talk about the body of Christ being one. The thing that gets in the way is when we identify one another by denominational names. I'm a Baptist. Well, you might belong to a Baptist group, but you're a, you're a believer, you're a follower of Christ, not a Baptist, or Pentecostal, or Presbyterian, or AGC, or whatever. Or sometimes the temptation is to align ourselves with other groups or other associations in such a way that that can result in a spirit of elitism that we kind of have it made over the rest because this is how we align ourselves or even arrogance or segregation. And that's a very real temptation that's happening in North American churches. Believers are members of Christ first, regardless of what church they attend. The church of God in Corinth, he wrote. And to us, he says, the church of God in Woodstock, the church of God here in the rock. So we're all united with Christ or joined with him. And that leads, obviously, to the next thought that we're all united with Christ's body. It is God himself who places us into this one body of Christ. Uh, Signing the paper this morning does not get you into the body of Christ. We were all baptized into one body, our text says. When you and I come to repentance and faith in Christ, God takes us and he spiritually places us into, he immerses us into the body of Christ. It happens the moment we are born into God's family. It's not something we seek after or we work for or experience later. You can think of it as as a spiritual placing that God does with the moment of new birth. It's like if you're born in Canada, you are immediately immersed into Canadian citizenship. You don't have to go through any hoops. You don't have to work for it. It's just it's simultaneous. The moment you're born in this country, and so with spiritual birth, the moment the new life of Christ flows into us by the Holy Spirit, we are immersed into the body of Christ. We are baptized into the body of Christ. And God personally places us in spiritual union then through that immersion with all other believers. You are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. And we are then in this mystical spiritual union with every true believer on the face of the earth, whether they're in Africa or India, South America, wherever they are in the world. This very moment, we are linked together spiritually with them in this spiritual baptism, this immersion. You know, we can sense this whenever we meet another believer. Maybe you've 
you've never, yes, so you know a believer, you meet a believer, you know them, and you have this kind of instant connection. Or it may be that you're, you happen to chance to be talking to someone, and you kind of sense, you know, there's kind of a spiritual kinship here. I wonder if they're a Christian. You know those vibes that you sense? Well, that's part of the, of the reality of, of, of being in the body of Christ. And each of us is equally a part of Christ's body. It's not simply that we are part of it, but we are equally a part of it. There are no degrees of membership in Christ's body. And Paul emphasizes that every believer has been immersed or baptized into Christ's body. And this erases any human distinctions that may exist. So he says, whether we are Jews or Greeks, whether you're slave or free, it doesn't matter what your status is in life, we are all equally a part of the body of Christ. Now this was a huge obstacle for early Jewish believers when it came to the whole idea of even even entertaining the thought that non-Jewish people could have full, equal relationship with Christ in the body of Christ. It took them a lot of struggles, as, you, as we know in the history of the New Testament. And you know, you and I tend to get, up on, get hung up on these external differences. If we're honest, we do. I do. We may find it a challenge to see that we're on the same level, equally a part of the body of Christ, with people from different ethnic groups. It may not be your issue, but it can be for, for some of us. Or those with less education than us, that somehow we're at a different level in the body of Christ. Or those with mental, physical, and emotional challenges, that somehow they're not quite where we are. But there's no spiritual experience or achievements that separates us from each other. And there are no grounds for us feeling that we are less a part of Christ's body than some other believers who may be more talented or more educated or in a higher social level than we are. And I think that we do find ourselves inwardly sometimes fighting against these kind of things. That's why we need to be reminded that we are all equally united in Christ's body. So the church in Corinth was engulfed in a sort of, someone calls it a spiritual mutiny. And, and I quote these, the statement. Their conduct was as unreasonable, as foolish, as fatal, as if the limbs of the human body were in a state of sedition, of mutiny. The eye quarreling with the ear, the foot envying and impeding the hand. And so Paul comes down again and again. Now you are the body of Christ and members severally or individually. They're all on level ground. The truth is, we're all united in the body of Christ, and that assures us that we have a value. Now, I want us to mentally, but don't outwardly express this, I want us to imagine a value scale from zero to ten. And I want you to think, where would you put yourself between zero and ten as your value to this body of believers? And where would you put others in this, in this church family of their value in this body of believers? Now, we tend to be humble, and we'll put ourselves kind of low. So we'll give ourselves three or four. That's how valuable, and some may even less. 
And we'll say about others, well, I think there are five or six, or maybe a seven. But where does God put your value and my value? At the top. We all get a ten. We're all equally valuable in the body of Christ. That means we're all significant in Christ's body. We're all significant. Each of us is on level spiritual ground with everybody else. There are no elite or special Christians, no matter how you think about that. You know, you think of Billy Graham, well, he's elite. No, no, he is on the same level of significance as you and I, or whoever you may think of. Paul pictures the various parts of the body, you know, thinking and talking among themselves and their importance or non-importance in verse 14. Now, the body is not made up of one part but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the eye should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the human body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it were, there are many parts, but one body. Each part of our human body looks different, is treated differently, and serves different purposes. But each has a common source and a common goal. So in the human body, every member in the human body is just as valuable as the rest. And you and I need to avoid, like the plague about comparing ourselves or measuring ourselves with others in the church family because we will either end up feeling proud or feeling deflated. And God doesn't want us anywhere there. Now, I'm going to use a, something here. So I know many of you aren't guitarists, but some of us are. And we all think we're pretty good. But if we hear about someone who is a just a great guitarist, we won't even let them know we play guitar. Or if you're a pianist or a soloist, or if you're an artist, you know, and you do your little artwork, and you hear you're with someone who, you know, is an, a celebrated artist, you kind of just say, I don't want anybody to know I'm an artist. Now, that's, that's the way we're tempted to feel, depending on who we are around, even in this own church family. That's why we need to base our significance on our relationship with Jesus instead of on our comparison with others. When I was 23, I just finished Bible school, and I had been accepted to pastor a little country church. And about a month after I had been there, I had to go and appear before the AGC brass, to be interviewed and approved. They do things a little differently nowadays, but that was in 1965. Yeah, I'm really old, yeah. <laughs> and I remember 
Uh, and my, my pastor, when I was a teenager, was part of that group. And I remember after going home, I, I just felt like throwing in the towel. I felt so inadequate, so out of place. And I know we all struggle in that area from time to time. But that's our problem that we put on ourselves. Each of us is an equal part of Christ's body. We don't need to take a back seat to anyone else when it comes to our significance in the church. We are as significant to Jesus as every other believer in this room or every believer in the world. One of the problems of the church in Corinth came when some put more importance on spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues or prophesying. These very ecstatic, outwardly, uh, attention-grabbing expressions that God was actively working in their life. So Paul is explaining that God works in and through every believer, even though he does it in different ways. So one of the things he's celebrating is diversity. Diversity. It's intentional in the body of Christ. God intends it to be that way. Verse 4, we read it earlier, but let me read it again. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but it's the same spirit that's activating those. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. And there are different kinds of working, but the same God works in all of them. So spiritual gifts, or even natural abilities, have nothing to do with our significance in the church. Nothing. So don't give in to the temptation to feel that you may be not as important are not as valuable as others in the church family. Remember where you are on God's scale. You're at the top with everybody else. And that, not only that we are significant, but we are all essential in Christ's body, in the body of Christ, in this body. We're all essential. The rest of the body needs us. Paul says that no part of our human body can say, I don't need you, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And so on. We can't get along very well without every part of our body. So this body speak that Paul is engaging in here is really aimed at some in the church who thought they did not need others because they didn't have the same spiritual gifts as they did. And it speaks to the temptation for each of us to either feel excluded or to exclude others in the church family. This is where our old nature wants to take us. And we all will wrestle with this if we're honest. But this is where we have to push back and push past this natural instinct to write someone off or even write ourselves off and say we don't matter to the rest of the church. The rest of the body, here's, here's it's a wonderful thought, truth. The rest of the body needs what we alone have to offer. Now, I want you to take that home with you. That's the take home. Each of us is equipped by God to contribute in some way to the rest of the believers that we're part of. 
As someone said, everybody has something, but nobody has everything. We're all, we're not complete. That's why we need one another. Now, what is that something? What is that something that we have to contribute to other people in this church family, other believers? Well, it's the way God has equipped us to impact others in the body of Christ. Paul talks about this in verse 7. Now, to each one, to each individual believer, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the benefit of the rest. The manifestation of the Spirit. Manifest means to be obvious, to express, to show up. So what Paul is saying, that the God, the Holy Spirit, chooses to show up in each of our lives in a unique way and in a way that's designed to benefit others in the church family for the common good, for the benefit of the rest. See, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is equally and fully present in each believer. He's a person. He's not piecemeal that you can get a little bit of the Spirit and a little bit more later. He's in one person. So we all have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us in, in complete. And he's fully and equally present in every believer. And he re, but he reveals himself through his presence in our physical being in unique ways as he chooses. And this diversity is not only intentional by God, but it's essential. Paul calls this manifestation spiritual gifts. Verse 4, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts for the same spirit. Spiritual gifts, we have to be reminded, are different than natural abilities and talents. And that gets kind of fuzzy at times. But he's not talking about the ability to play the piano or the ability to sing or even the ability to be an orator. He's talking about the spiritual abilities or graces that only the Holy Spirit can bring in in our life and use it to contribute to others in the church family. And each of us is spiritually wired and motivated to provide something to others in the body of Christ. Yes, you are, if you say, not me. Yes, you are. Because God says so in his word. No one can say they, they have nothing to offer to other Christians. If you're truly born again and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, you cannot say, I don't have anything to offer to other believers. Because that's what God's word says we do have. Now, I'm going to turn back to Romans 12. It's one of the other chapters in the Bible that Paul talks about spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, you'll know the context that he's talking about presenting your bodies of a living sacrifice. Then he goes on to say in verse 3 in Romans 12, For by the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of you believers, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ, we who are many form one body, 
and each member belongs to all the others, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. We have different gifts according to the grace, the charis, given to us. So what's on the spiritual gift list that we can look for? Well, going on in this in this text in Romans 12, Paul gives us a partial list. This is representative. So he says in verse 6, We have different gifts, different charismata, according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, and you'll see on the, on the screen there, if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So here's some of the examples of how the Holy Spirit manifests himself in individual believers. Not all in the same way, but this is a representative list. And you can compare that with Romans, First uh, Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, and you get a, a fuller picture. But most commentators believe there's 20 or 21 specific gifts listed, but they are not complete. It's representative. So don't feel, if you don't appear on this list, that you don't have anything. This is only a representative list. So how do we know how the Holy Spirit equips us? How do we know... What the spiritual, what the way the Holy Spirit manifests Himself in us and through us. Are there some clues? I want to suggest two clues. These are, I won't, I can't find a Bible verse for this, but it's just, just deduction. One clue is to be aware of what, what you find joy and passion in doing when it comes to serving Christ in any way. It may be behind the scenes. It might be one-on-one. It might be in an open and even public way. But what kind of it fulfills you and you feel joy, you feel freedom in this. This is just something, your, your comfort zone. The second clue, which I think is more significant, and by the way, don't be too concerned with going through all the graphs and all the tests to try and find your spiritual gift. It's not your spiritual gift. It's the Holy Spirit's gift, the way he expresses himself. But more important, another clue is how the Holy Spirit equips and reveals himself in us, through us, by knowing what others see in us and through us. You see, we don't have a spiritual gifts mirror that we can hold up to ourselves and say, oh, that's my spiritual gift. But every other believer becomes that spiritual gift's mirror because they can see things that we don't see. They can see what, how we encourage others, perhaps, or how we're always ready to serve, how we're always giving in a material way to help others, how we instinctively, without even thinking about it, just automatically speak in another person's life. And one way we can help and affirm God's gifts in one another is to tell them what we see in them. You know, I, I see how God really uses you, and, and he's, he's giving you this, this, what we want to call it, a ministry. 
And it's something that spouses can do to affirm one another. You know, and just ask your spouse, how do you see God showing up in my life? Do you, do you see how he, what's my tendency? It's something that we can do with our children or grandchildren. That's a good challenge for parents. Kind of discern. Now, they, we're talking about people who are born again, so don't be premature in that. But as people are born again and they start to develop, God is going to start working through them. They're going to be people. Maybe they're compassionate. or Maybe they have a merciful heart. Maybe they're people of faith. And seniors need this affirmation because as seniors, we tend to feel less significant as we step back from active involvement or have increasing limitations, and we say, they don't need me. But we do need one another. The body of Christ, this church, needs what only each of you can provide. The nature of the human body and the spiritual body requires that each member or part is connected to the other parts. The hand, so how does that work? Well, the hand has to interact and be connected with the rest of the body to benefit it. And so believers, you and I need to be personally connected with other believers in order to benefit them and vice versa. So that might be face-to-face, which is the best, or it may be over the telephone. It may be by Skype or by email or whatever form of, God has given us a lot of technology to interact with one another, but I'm thinking in the sense of how we can benefit someone else. So we don't have to be up front to do that. And nobody else may know how we are, God is using us to speak in another person's life. So Christ's body, this church, needs each of us to serve the rest of the body to the best of our ability, the best of our capacity. And we need to be realistic about the spiritual gifts that God has given to each of us. Let's not be proud about how God has wired us, like I'm a better teacher than you are. I'm a better leader than others. No, that's that's shouldn't be part of the equation. That's outside of, of the body of Christ. So let's roll up our sleeves. And And by the way, don't, allow yourself to feel you don't have much to offer to the rest of the body because that would be a slap in the face of the Holy Spirit because he has wired you to be able. So let's roll up our spiritual sleeves and work together and keep it what God has equipped us to do. It's for our benefit and for the benefit of one another. It's the same with being a part of this church, whether you're an official member or not. Now, I'm going to make a quote, and, and don't take this kind of harsh statement by Charles Spurgeon. I'm not firing it at you. Just think of the spirit of it. So, you know, a well-known British pastor probably a 100 years ago, he, in a sermon, he urged his people this way. I want every member of this church to be a worker. We do not want any drones. If there are any of you who want to eat and drink and do nothing, there are plenty of places elsewhere where you can do it. There are empty pews about in abundance. Go and fill them, for we do not want you. (laughs) Every Christian who is not a bee is a wasp. The most quarrelsome persons are the most useless. 
And they who are the most happy are peaceable and are generally those who are doing most for Christ. Actually, there there is a group of churches in Ontario who say the same thing in spirit. If you don't want to be involved in our ministry in small groups, just go somewhere else and let someone else have a place to sit in our services. That's literally what they... But it's the spirit of it, right? So the spirit of the statement is that we need each other to contribute to the life of this church in the way that God has wired and equipped us. Remember, the church, this church is about Jesus Christ and his body. It's not about us. It's not about me. So let's give ourselves wholeheartedly to investing ourselves in each other for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we're no different than that first century church in Corinth. They're no different than us. We're all human. We all have tendencies that get in the way of what you've called us to be as a church in the body of Christ. And I pray that you will encourage us and motivate us and use us for your name, for your honor and glory in this church through whoever, wherever we have opportunity to serve one another. May you be praised for Christ's sake, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Thank you Wayne. Uh, we all exercise.